Thank you, Pastor Dave. As he alluded to, we've spent two and a half months in the book of Ephesians, and today we come to the end, and our topic is spiritual warfare. To that end, can we pray before we look at God's word? Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the declarations of new life, of what you've been doing in, in the hearts and minds of our, of our teenagers, Lord. Um, Father, thank you for your word and how you've been stirring us up over the last couple months and how you've been preparing us to go out and engage in the, the spread of your gospel, Lord. And today, soberly, we realize that there is an enemy who comes against us. And so as we look at your word this morning, Father, I pray that you would soften hearts, that you would wake us up, Lord, that we would be alert to the reality of the world that we live in. So I ask that your words would come today. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite movies of 1998, which should have won Best Picture that year, was the film entitled Saving Private Ryan. That movie tells the story of a survivor of World War II whom a platoon of men rescued. They were ordered to undertake this mission because the army discovered that Private Ryan was one of four brothers who fought in the war and the only one not to perish when the Allies retook Europe. They wanted to spare his mother the grief of losing all of her sons. The movie starred Tom Hanks and was directed by Steven Spielberg. Hanks, who was the captain of the rescuing platoon, and all his men risked their lives by going behind enemy lines for this mission. Nearly all the men died, ironically, except for Private Ryan. It's a tremendous story about heroism and sacrifice. But the interesting thing about this movie is, while the narrative is compelling, the aspect that drew the most initial attention was the film's opening 20 minutes. It was here that Spielberg very realistically depicted the battle for Normandy Beach, or D-Day as it is commonly known. Those 20 minutes were so realistic that people were fascinated with how Spielberg captured the scene. And so in an interview, as Spielberg talked about making those first 20 minutes, he said this, My goal was to depict war as hell. War as hell. Indeed it is. And I feel fortunate that I have never had to fight in a war, and for those who've undertaken that risk, you have my highest respect. But we would also be naive not to think that life itself oftentimes feels like a war. Sometimes tragedy strikes our lives, and it can feel like we're literally walking through hell, or more precise to this illustration, like we're storming Normandy Beach, and the bullets are flying all around us, maybe even watching our friends get taken out. And there's a reason for that, because we live in a world after the fall. We live in a world that is at war, and we live in a world that is not as it should be. We live in a world with an unseen enemy, and we are unsettled by the reality of evil, and yet most of us don't know what to make of evil. In fact, to that point, journalist Scott Simon published an article on NPR, National Public Radio, this past April. He writes that he has always avoided using the word evil when covering terrible events around the globe, claiming he was of a generation educated to believe that evil was a cartoonish moral concept. But then he watched with his daughters some of the sickening images from the chemical weapons attack in Syria in April of 2017, which killed scores of people, many of them children. Simon writes, he says, We watched in silence. Finally, one of our daughters asked, why would anyone do that? 
He says, I still avoid saying evil as a reporter, but as a parent, I've grown to feel it may be important to tell children about evil as we struggle to explain cruel and incomprehensible behavior that we may not just see in history, but in our own times. Simon then recalls an interview he did about the genocide in the African country of Rwanda, an interview he did with Romeo Dallaire, who commanded the UN peacekeeping forces there in 1993 and 1994, where more than 800,000 Tutsi Rwandans were slaughtered in just over three months. And this is what he says. He says, Dallaire said that what happened made him believe in evil, and even a force he called the devil. I've negotiated with him, he told us, shaken his hand, yes, There is no doubt in my mind, and the expression of evil to me is through the devil, and the devil is at work possessing human beings and turning them into machines of destruction. That is such an interesting statement, because Romeo Dallaire stated that after witnessing one of the greatest atrocities in modern history, he believed the devil had a part to play in it. Now, in our modern scientific world, I know that we like to avoid talking about the supernatural, but would you consider today that behind much of the evil we see in the world, that there are unseen spiritual forces of darkness at work? And if you find that belief objectionable, I'll try to address some of those questions in just a moment. Until then, I would simply ask that you ponder this question. Do you believe that the devil exists and that he is interacting with this world? Because that question is of particular importance today as we come to the end of our Rooted series and as we look at the end of the book of Ephesians, where the devil will come front and center. In fact, Paul assumes that the devil is real. And everything he's been saying up to this point has been a preparation for us to stand against the devil and his schemes. Now he's going to show us how to engage in spiritual warfare. So Ephesians chapter, 20 verses, chapter 6, verses 10 to 20, Paul will give us a spiritual warfare, uh, a field manual on how to engage in spiritual warfare. So I invite you to join me there. And it's going to include three things. The first one is we have to know our enemy, then we have to prepare for battle, and we have to listen to our captain. So point one, we have to know our enemy. We have to know our enemy. Now within the military... The intelligence corps plays a vital role in warfare. They enable the officers to understand and know the enemy and what he's doing by important reconnaissance work. The same is true within the Christian life. Unless we know who our enemy is, where he is, and what he can do, we will have a difficult time defeating him. And so Paul knows this, and that's why the first point he makes is exactly this. We have to know our enemy. He starts this section by reminding the believers of the Lord's power. Look at verse 10. He says, finally, after everything I've said, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This passage is a summary for the entire letter. Sadly, today is our last sermon in this very impactful series. We began back in September with Paul developing a strong theology of our identity as believers in Christ in chapters 1 to 3. We learned who we are in Christ the power we have from him. He spoke about issues of racism, how Jesus Christ has torn down the dividing wall of hostility and created one new humanity. He spoke of our our adoption into the family of God. In chapters 4 and 5, Paul talked about the importance of unity in the church and our call to live in a manner worthy of the gospel in our homes, 
in the church, and in the world. I love how Andy Stanley summarizes the whole letter of Ephesians. He says, In light of who we are, by the gift of God's grace, let us walk in a manner worthy of our place. In our series, we've put it this way. We first have to grow deep, then we love wide, and now in chapter 6, Paul says it's time to live tall. It's time to fight. And so he says, finally, be strong. Remember who your God is and his strength, because the war will only get more intense. You need to be ready. And how do we get ready? Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. We need to put on the armor of God in preparation for battle, which we'll get to in our next section. But first, consider this question. When do we put on the armor? Do soldiers put their armor on after the battle starts? No. They put on the armor before they go into battle. You don't want to get into battle with flaming darts falling all around you and say, you know what, I need to go put my armor on. It doesn't work that way. That's pointless. You put it on before the battle starts. And do you notice why you need to put the armor on or we need to put the armor on? To stand against the schemes of the devil. Which begs another very important question. Who ju- just who is the devil? Who is the devil? Now, in our popular culture, we have, to, we have this notion that the devil has horns and a pitchfork and that he lives in New Jersey. However, what scripture, all right, what scripture says about the devil is that he is our enemy. And while he goes by many names, such as the tempter, the murderer, and the father of lies, and the serpent in the garden of Eden... The Greek word Paul uses here is the word diabolos. It is a verb that means liar and slanderer. In other words, the devil is the accuser who throws lies at us. In fact, the main way the devil works is as a liar. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 and 15, that the devil masquerades as an angel of light to deceive us. And how does he lie to us? You know, the devil's lies are not random. They are calculated attacks. The ESV uses the word schemes. Some older translations will refer to this as the devil's wiles. The Greek word is methodia, which literally means strategies. And what Paul is saying here is this. The devil is an intelligent being that carefully strategizes his plans against the church, God's plan of redemption, and individuals. So make no mistake, the devil knows your weaknesses, and he knows exactly how to attack you. And what does Paul tell us? He tells us we need to stand against him. And so with this in mind, I think there's two errors we often make when approaching our stand against the devil. And the first is this. We overestimate the devil's power. When we do this, we assume the devil is stronger than he actually is. Remember that Christ is Lord over this world, the devil is not. The devil is not omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. At the end of the day, God is more powerful than the devil. And while there's times in scriptures, such as the beginning of Job, where God allows the devil to do certain things, Christ will ultimately defeat him and cast him into the lake of fire. Amen? Amen. Christian, remember these words from 1 John 4, 4, that he who is in us and you is greater than he who is in the world. Now, on the other hand, sometimes we underestimate the devil's power and we forget his existence. Many of you may remember C.S. Lewis's famous work, The Screwtape Letters, and in this account, he says that one of the devil's goals was to get the world to believe that he doesn't exist, 
While he's not all-powerful, the devil will try to cause trouble, and he's actively seeking to cause harm and bring evil into this world. Don't overestimate the devil, but don't underestimate him either. Now, if you're someone here today who questions the existence of the devil and spiritual evil, let me offer a helpful illustration from the preacher Richard Baxter. In one sermon, Baxter poses the question, what causes depression? What causes depression? And he cites four possibilities. First, he says there could be a physical ailment that is troubling the patient. Second, he says there, he says there could be a psychological issue that, it, that is going on and needs to be treated. Mental illness is a big deal. It's a big deal. In fact, uh, there's a coalition being developed in Berners Township to help combat this issue. Third, he says, there could be a moral dimension to depression. In other words, someone may have guilt from an action that is causing them to be depressed. But finally, he says there could be a demonic influence that is causing depression. Now, if you're skeptical about that last point, I would note that there are secular psychiatrists who have gone on record expressing sentiments that, there, that some spiritual force may be at work when it comes to depression at times. And so what Baxter was getting at here, he was trying to establish a balanced view of the devil's influence, and this was his point, that some Christians will attribute so much to the devil, in other words, the devil's just attacking me all the time, that they underestimate the other parts or underemphasize them. Or if you think the devil has nothing to do with it, you're going to miss a very, very important point if that's actually what is going on. We underestimate and we overestimate the devil, and both errors are part of the devil's schemes. In this war, it is crucial that we understand the weapons of the enemy so we are not surprised. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, both errors equally please the devil because you are not able to see everything he is throwing at you. In other words, just as Baxter suggested, we have to understand the various things Satan uses to harm us, which goes beyond the unseen spiritual reality. We must have a balanced approach if we're to understand what is truly happening, because the devil knows how to attack us, and we need to be ready. But the devil is not alone in his attacks. He has an army at his command to attack us. Look at verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic for powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Who are these rulers and authorities? Now, while it may sound weird to some, I would suggest these are demonic creatures aiding Satan in his attack against believers. These two things I want you to, there's two things I want you to notice. First, our battle is not solely against flesh and blood. That word wrestle that he uses there literally means struggle. It's an athletic image related to wrestling, which shows the nature of our warfare. Now, what he is saying here is not that we don't wrestle against any form of physical evil. In fact, Paul has already spoken in the letter about racism and greed and hatred. What he is saying here is that there is something behind the flesh and blood evil in our world. And so secondly there, are spirit, secondly, there are spiritual forces behind evil in this world. That's what he's referring to when it comes to rulers and authorities and cosmic powers. Now, some people, th I think, take this too far. 
I'm not really sure we can say that there's a spirit of greed outside of San Francisco because the gold rush happened there, or there's a spirit of materialism in Manhattan because Wall Street exists. It could just be human depravity, so I'm not so sure. But I do think this spiritual, that spiritual forces are real and that we need to be attuned to them. And the good news of the gospel is this, that we don't need to be afraid, that God is greater than the devil. We are called to fear God, not these spiritual forces of evil. And so as we close this section, I do want to emphasize again what Jesus himself said in John eight forty four that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a liar, and he has legions of liars at his command. And this is where, how it works. Our hearts and minds are like the strings on a piano. The devil knows where we are weak, and he stimulates the thoughts inside of us through lies. He knows the right keys to press and which heartstrings to vibrate. And here's the reality you have to recognize. The devil can't make a good person bad, but he can make a flawed person worse. And he does this by knowing how to play the strings of our heart because the devil is a liar. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks outlines two primary ways the devil lies to us. The first is this. The devil lies through temptation. When we are tempted to sin, Satan attempts to hide the reality of God's holiness. Here, Brooks says, are some of the ways this can play out. See if you resonate with this. He says, Satan shows us the bait and hides the hook. In other words, he causes us to focus on short-term pleasure, and he hides the long-term pain of our choices. He makes us bitter over suffering. When that happens, we start to believe this lie, I've suffered, so I deserve this. Satan knows, shows Christians how bad people have great lives, and so we start to believe the lie that we should do bad things too because that's how you get ahead. Now, the second way that the devil lies to us is through accusation. When Satan accuses us, he hides the reality of God's grace, his mercy, and love. In this attack, Satan wants us to see God as judge, who want, who, as a judge who wants to condemn us. And here's how this plays out. He causes us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. I think we know this reality. In fact, when you get one criticism, don't you focus more on criticism than complaints? <laughs> In fact, if you get one criticism, oftentimes we need four to five comp- compliments to make us feel, you know, forgetting the criticism. And every time we look at sin, we need four to five looks at our Savior. He also says he causes us to obsess over past sins that have done, da- that have done damage and can't be undone. He says Satan causes Christians to believe that all our struggles are God punishing us. Can you resonate with any of these? And church, don't you see what the devil is doing? What the devil does is that he tempts us to engage in harmful behavior that won't satisfy us, and then, and then, he comes behind us, accusing and condemning us for the very behavior he tempted us to do in the first place. Really? See, Satan is smart. He's cunning. He knows how to play our hearts and take us out, and we have to fight. Friends, if we're going to fight effectively, we need to know our enemy. 
But knowing our enemy is not enough. We need to take that knowledge and prepare for battle. And that's our second point. Prepare for battle. Now Paul moves into a discussion on our, about our defensive and offensive capabilities. Before he does that, he exhorts us one more time to be prepared. Look at verse 13. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Friends, we've already learned that we have an enemy who is strategically trying to take us out, and we need to fight back. What does Paul say to the Ephesians? He says, take up the whole armor of God. And take up here is an imperative verb that is frequently used in connection with bringing up weapons. And what Paul's getting at here is is this. He says, don't sit back and relax. Arm yourselves for battle. But here's the problem with most of us, including myself. We allow ourselves to be lulled into a false sense of security. With everything that's going on in our lives, we don't expect an attack, and then it comes. And then we're off balance. Have you ever had somebody push you when you're off balance? How easy is it to actually stand firm? It's not very easy. And this is how it plays out spiritually. When we're off balance and not alert and standing firm, we have no prayer life. Our understanding of the Bible is superficial, We have minimal church involvement, and when we do come, we have a need for inspiration, not growing deeper. We're like the Hessians before George Washington's attack in the American Revolution. Do you know this bit of New Jersey history? There's a park named Washington Crossing State Park, which is where George Washington crossed over the Delaware to defeat the group of German missionaries that were working for the the British called the Hessians, who were asleep on Christmas Day. Because they thought there is absolutely no way that George Washington will attack us on Christmas Day. And then he did, and he routed them, and it was a turning point in the war. Some of us live our Christian lives like the Hessians. And when the arrows start flying, we're not prepared. And we're off balance, and we can't stand firm. And what Paul is saying is this. Even though you may not feel like you're under attack right now, one day it will come. You need to be ready when you are not under attack for when you will be. So get ready. And how do we get ready? We put on the armor. And so Paul lists six crucial pieces of armor that the Christian needs to wear. Let's look at them individually. Verse 14, he says, Standing firm, having fastened on the belt of truth. This is already the fourth occurrence of this verb, stand, in this passage, which is emphasizing the goal of our struggle. It means that we need to be both defensive and offensive. And Paul says, when the attack comes, stand and fight. How? Well, we have to fasten, put on the belt of truth around our waist. Now, the belt of truth is the thing that holds all the other pieces together, particularly because it is underneath the rest of the armor. It was actually a leather belt that had armor strappings that would go down and protect the thighs so that when arrows came, you wouldn't get the arrows in your thighs. And it also slips underneath all the rest of the armor because truth is the key to everything. If we don't have the truth, we don't have anything. That's why Paul spent so much time talking about our hope, our inheritance, and our blessings that we have through our identity in Christ. The truth needs to be deep down in our hearts, not just in our heads. That is why he writes to the church in Colossae, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual thongs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
See, when we strapping on the belt of truth for us means knowing the word of God and letting it dwell in our hearts richly. Truth is what holds everything together. And the next two items build upon that and are necessary for routine mission. But even if you, even if you don't encounter battle, look at verse 14, he says, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Do you know how important, how, how important a good pair of shoes are if you want to move fast? Right? Try staying balanced during an athletic workout if your shoes are not good. Likewise, good shoes are important if you want to be agile on the field of battle. And so the Roman soldier shoes were actually half boots that looked kind of like sandals that were strapped on there. And they had spikes on the bottom of them so the soldier could move quickly. And notice how the shoes are linked to the gospel of peace because there is nothing that Satan hates more than the spread of the gospel. And the breastplate is important because it protects what? The heart, right? Because, you know, I can take an arrow in my leg or in my arm or in my foot and live, but if I take an arrow in my heart, most likely I'm going to die. And truthfully, apart from Christ's righteousness imputed to me, I would be destined for death. The breastplate protects the heart. And the principle that Paul is getting at here is this. Practicing sin and disregarding God's call for purity leaves us open to fatal wounds from the evil one. So now while the first three, enemies are, uh, first three items are crucial, the fiery darts of the arrow of the enemy start coming, flying, and you definitely want the next two items. Verse 16, he says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation. Now that phrase, take up, is now in the active voice, which means literally, it's time to fight. The shield of faith, to me, was one of the most intriguing pieces of armor because it's not the type of shield I pictured. You know, many Roman soldiers will walk around with round shields as they're ready for battle, but the word that Paul uses here is different. It's the Greek word scudum, which referred to a large rectangular shield that the soldier could crouch under to protect them from the fiery arrows. The outer coating of the shield was made of a material that would actually extinguish the arrows that were fired. Even more interesting, these shields were often carried by a legion of foot soldiers, as you can see here, as they were locked together to protect the group from attack. That's what Paul is getting at here is this, faith is trust in God's power and assurance of our identity in Christ. And when Satan's attacks come, we raise up the shield of faith, which Paul's already established earlier in this letter, and extinguish those flaming arrows. And in the church, we help our brothers and sisters do this as well. Now, the image of flaming arrows would have been a well-known one in the ancient world. Armies were always trying to devise ways to ignite arrows to launch at their enemies. What are the flaming darts that the devil shoots at us? Well, in his book, By Grace Alone, Sinclair Ferguson identifies four major fiery darts that Satan uses to unsettle believers and rob them of their assurance and peace in the gospel. Fiery dart one. God is against you, Satan says. He is not really for you. How can you believe he is for you when you see all the things that are happening in your life? Have you ever had that one? Fiery dart two. I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in defense? Nothing. Fiery dart three. 
How can you say you are forgiven? You can't say you're forgiven because there is a payback day coming, a condemnation day. Satan insinuates, how will you defend yourself then? Fiery dart four, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? Satan asks. You see, the fiery darts of Satan are often subtle lies that get placed in our hearts and minds. And unfortunately, those are the most destructive because you may not realize that you are there, they are there or their effect for many years. Thomas Brooks puts it this way. He says, Satan does not leave fangs in our flesh. He leaves lies in our hearts. And the helmet of salvation protects our head. In other words, it protects our mind. Remember how Paul told the Ephesians in chapter 5, let no one deceive you with empty thoughts. What he was talking about was the mind. The helmet protects and reminds us not only of our future salvation, but of our present reality, standing, and justification before God because of Christ's blood. And then finally, Paul introduces the weapon that will be used for both offense and defense. Verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is both a defensive and offensive weapon. It's defensive because we study and memorize scripture so we can know the truth of who we are in Christ. But it also is an offensive weapon with which we can disarm the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now please take note of this. This is not a long sword that Paul is talking about here. The word he uses for sword referred to a short sword used for close-up battle. It could literally be a dagger or a knife. It was the short sword worn by every Roman infantryman. And I think that was intentional. Because with a long sword, you can keep your enemies far away. But with a short sword, your enemy gets up close. And literally, you have to fight in hand-to-hand combat where you can smell their sweat. What Paul is saying is this. We are going to do close-up battle with our enemy. Our enemy is going to be so close to our hearts and minds, trying to deceive us and bring us down that we can smell his sweat as we struggle against him. And friends, we need to be ready. Because before you know it, the enemy could be in your home, standing right next to you and whispering lies in your ear and getting them lodged in your heart. Be alert, Paul says. Be ready. Always. Because, friends, you live in a world at war. Are you ready? Sadly, I think many Christians rewrite verses 14 to 18 and approach spiritual warfare from a weak position. In fact, look at this example I I pulled from another pastor and see if it resonates with you, if you ever do this. He says, lay back and relax instead of stand firm. Then, with the belt of evasion, buckle loosely around your waist. And with the breastplate of defensiveness in place. And with your feet fitted with the pluralism that offends no one. In addition to all this, take up the shield of grudges with which you can hold tightly to hurts and slights. Take the helmet of entitlement and the bludgeon of the flesh, which is the word of anger, and air what's been done to you on all occasions with all kinds of criticisms and complaints. Now church, does that feel like your spiritual life? If so, we're not prepared for battle. Things may be good right now, but what will you do when the day of evil comes? 
and the flaming arrows of the enemy are raining down upon you. Because when that happens, I don't want to be running back to my house looking for my armor. I want to have it on already. We have to know our enemy. We have to be prepared for battle. But finally, every soldier needs to listen to their captain. You know, in chapter 5, Paul uses the language of headship to describe the relationship of Christ to the church because Jesus is our leader. Jesus is our Lord, and we need to fall under his command. He is all-wise, all-knowing, all-powerful, and I want to follow him into battle. We need to stay in constant communication with him. How do we do this? One word, prayer. This is how we listen to our captain, and it is so important What does Jesus tell his disciples in the garden? He says, pray, stay alert, because Jesus knew there was danger. In other words, we need to always pray, staying connected to our captain. Look at what Paul writes in verse 18. He says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication, at all times, which echoes the famous words that Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, where he simply says, pray, without ceasing. And church, as we wage spiritual war, may we never stop praying. May we never lose sight of Jesus and may we never be so far away from his voice that we cannot hear him. What does it mean to pray in the spirit? Well, John Piper, I think, is helpful here. He says, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comforts of the saints. And the truth is, go to the next slide, or go back one slide. The truth is this, I don't want to be caught on the battlefield without my leader, because then I'm dead. And what Paul is doing is presetting prayer as foundational for the deployment of all other weapons. The verse brings us back to the beginning of this section where Paul told us to depend upon the power of the Lord. Don't go into battle without your captain because prayer is critical. Back in Ephesians 1, Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. In chapter 3, he prayed that we would understand the mystery of the gospel. His prayers were preparing us for the day of evil so we could stand. And to that end, Paul says, pray. Pray with supplication, which means every conceivable prayer you can imagine. He writes, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance in verse 18, making supplication for all the saints. And as you pray, Paul says, be on your guard. Make sure you stay alert. Don't stop. And make sure you pray for your brothers and sisters too, because all of us are in this together. Oh, and one more thing he says, verse 19. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. As Paul writes this letter, he's in prison, and he's getting ready to go before the emperor. And he says, pray for me, because fiery darts are going to come around me from every angle. Pray that in the midst of battle, I could remain strong and I can keep my armor on. And that is what spiritual warfare is all about. All of us, together, fighting a common enemy for the sake of the gospel, 
Because we're part of the same infantry unit, raising up our interlocking shields of faith together as we advance a cause far greater than ourselves. And to do that, we need to know our enemy, we need to prepare for battle, and we need to listen to our captain. And when that happens, the gates of hell will be pushed back, and the world will be full of the good and the right and the true And the beauty of the gospel will be seen. And the mystery will be revealed to those who are blind. And lives will be changed for the glory of God. This is what Paul has been calling us to from the very beginning of this letter. And so as we close out this series today, our hope is that this has brought you just a little closer to that reality. The whole letter has been leading up to the climax here in chapter 6. Because if you're going to wage war, we have to know our identity in Christ. We have to be unified as a body. We have to live different as part of the new humanity. Our homes have to be united. And when those things happen, light comes into the world. Here's how Paul finishes the letter. In verse 23, he says, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith. From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus with love incorruptible. In other words, the body of Christ will receive grace without end. Incorruptible love that comes from our great God and Savior. And he calls us to share that with the world. He calls us to roll back the darkness as he leads the charge. You know, there's one interesting point that I didn't mention about Ephesians 6. Go to the last slide, please. The very, very last slide. A lot of people think that the armor of God is an image of a Roman soldier. And some of that may certainly be true. But there's also an image from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Of Yahweh God as the divine warrior. Listen to how Isaiah describes his clothing. In Isaiah 59, 17, he says, He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Does that sound familiar? Because in the Old Testament, Yahweh God was a covenant-keeping God of Israel who fought for them and protected them. And in the New Testament, he's still a covenant-keeping God. And he fulfilled his promise by sending his son. And it was Jesus Christ who would make the new covenant with his blood. You know, when Jesus Christ began his public ministry... And he called the disciples. They thought he would be Messiah, a warrior who would overthrow the Roman Empire. And Jesus said, no. No, my kingdom is not of this world. I will overthrow the enemy, not with a sword, but with a cross. Because the cross is is a far more powerful weapon than anything we can imagine. Is that not true, church? And Jesus Christ, the divine warrior, will one day return, as John saw in Revelation 19, as the rider on the white horse, his eyes blazing with fire, clothed for battle in blood-dipped garments and with a sharp sword piercing from his mouth. And he comes to wage war against our enemy, Satan, and he will vanquish him once and for all by crushing him underneath his feet and casting him into the lake of fire where he belongs. Amen. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, the divine warrior 
our rescuer and the true hero of our story. You know, I think the image of Jesus as the divine warrior and rescuer resonates today with us, particularly because we have a fascination with superheroes. In fact, this weekend, the latest superhero film was released. It was a film called Justice League. The movie unites DC Comics' Batman and Wonder Woman and and Superman, as well as a host of other heroes. The premise, of course, is that some evil force is threatening Earth, and these heroes must unite to stop it. But here is what I found most fascinating about the film's release. Ben Affleck, who plays Batman in the film, was interviewed and asked about the appeal of superheroes in 2017. And this is what he said. He said, there's a lot of stuff going on in this world, from natural to man-made disasters, and it's really scary. And part of the appeal of this genre is wish fulfillment. Listen to what he says next. He says, wouldn't it be nice if there was somebody who can save us from all this? Save us from ourselves and save us from the consequences of our actions and save us from people who are evil. And to that, Ben, I say, there is. And his question uncovers the longing of every human heart. And every superhero movie is an echo of the reality that we are in a spiritual war and there is, there is a hero who can save us from it all. Do you believe that, church? It's time to fight with the strength that comes from our great God and Savior as we know our enemy, as we prepare for battle, and as we listen to our captain and follow him into battle now and forever. Worship team, would you come? And as they come, let me close with the words of this very famous hymn. It goes like this. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe. Forward into battle, see his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. At the sign of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers and sisters, lift your voices. Let your anthems raise. Crowns and thrones may perish. Kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise. And that cannot fail. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war with the cross of Jesus going on before. Amen?